Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Bring on the Weird. You're Elijah. That's me, you're Will. That's me. Also. We're returning to the Hollow Earth, but I feel like it's not its not going to be as Hollow Earth-centric as the last episode. It's going to be mostly history. Is that what, is that what you think? Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless you got something way more than I do. Well, I don't know about more. Maybe different. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what I mean. Different. I mean, my stuff is all in the past. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, history. All right. <sighs> what are you drinking? Let's start there. Sour Monkey. Yeah. One of these. You're gonna you're gonna mix them up one of these days, man. Nah, I don't know, man. It's gonna happen. <laughs> what about you? Well, my wife bought me two different six packs of beer for my birthday the other night when we recorded the. The Patreon episode. And this one is the Breckenridge Brewery Vanilla Porter. It's tasty. I like some Vanilla, porter. huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like it. I'd entertain that. I like a good porter. How about you? You like porters? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they try to go real nuts with porters, though. The chocolate, porter, coffee, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Guys, what yeah. are you doing? What are you... I feel like they're just a little on, on the heavy side, though. That's the idea. Uh, it's too much. It's like a loaf of bread in a bottle. It's too heavy. <laughs> See, it Ooh. helps you. This is my first sip of the sour tonight. <laughs> it, it hits me every time. It's like a like a kick in the mouth. Exactly. That's why you got to cut that with the golden monkey. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't do that. Like I said, when you guys come down, next time you come down. We do half and half golden monkey, sour monkey. Yeah, you split yours, and then I'll taste it. And drink the rest of it. <laughs> if I like it, I'll split one. Uh, I think you're going to like it. Yeah. Maybe. Probably. So did you, I don't know how far back you went or what period of time you started, but one thing I found, and I heard it on another podcast, one of those conspiracy guys or one of the other random ones from my research, but did you hear about Crockerland? Uh, no. What is it? Crockerland. I don't think so. Where was this? I guess I could just get into the history of it. Uh, an explorer, Robert Perry, he he wanted to be the first one to get to the North Pole. This was in 1905, 1906, when he wanted to be the first one to get to the North Pole, all the way up there. Mm-hmm. And he 
he was enough of an explorer that he had a whole club dedicated to him and he'd get all this fundraising and support and all that from different people, National Geographic. Did he do National Geographic or was that somebody else? Yeah. He was trying to get all the Christmas presents for himself. <laughs> right. That's exactly what he was planning on doing. He wanted he's, to go find Santa Claus. He's going to take over. <laughs> These are my presents. Bobby Perry. He's the new Santa Claus. <laughs> but he was getting funded by a banker named George Crocker. He got $50,000 from George Crocker, who who was the youngest son of banker Charles Crocker. And he got $25,000 from Morris K. Jessup to buy a new ship, the SS Roosevelt. And he – there was some place where I saw that around this time they thought it was – they thought the world was coming into a new ice age. Did you see that? Nope. I didn't see that either. <laughs> but it was around this time. But Why people did they were just think exploring that? anyway. What? Why did they think that? Uh, maybe it wasn't then. It was this one. This thing says 1939. Oh, because it was. It has been conventionally defined as a period extended from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Because it was just brutally cold. People were getting stuck when they were trying to go exploring into the to the extreme poles. Aren't that what the poles do? Right. Well, not today. Well, that's true. Now people are getting all jacked up because. Oh man, my iceberg's not salt water. Your iceberg's not gonna be salt water. Cause it's salt. <laughs> Fresh water just, or salt water doesn't just float through the air. Fresh water is what freezes in the air. Right? But how did so, it get there, man? How did the iceberg get there? Yeah. Did it float it's, there? It's, it Where'd started it in the salt water. <laughs> but anyway, he, he was, he was trying to establish the furthest north by ship, and I think he got that, but he was trying to get all the way to uh, to the North Pole. But he got so far, he got to Ellesmere, Greenland. There was another place he got to before that. Um, what the hell was the place called? Thomas Cape Thomas. Hmm. Anyway, he got to a, a, one of the most northern points in Greenland, and while he was Standing there, observing and looking out across the Arctic Ocean, the Arctic Sea, he he saw some land, some green land, some mountains, and he wasn't. Uh, he discovered Cape Colgate, from whose summit he claimed in his 1907 book that he'd seen a previously undiscovered far north Crocker land. He named it after the banker that uh, funded the the trip. He saw it to the northwest on June 24th, 1906. A later review of his diary for this time and place found that he had written no land visible. But that was way later on because he convinced so many people that there was some sort of landmass out in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Hmm. And I looked it up on Google Earth today, and the closest thing, if you stand on this point where he was, then – the next closest land, looking out, Cape Thomas Hubbard, that's what it was, and look northwest from there. It's the northern parts of Russia, and the closest uh, the closest land from that point is over 1,200 miles away. Whoa. So when I found that out, I'm like, hold up. Is this some flat earth business or what? Because that's far away. It may be. 
Huh? They sent out another expedition. A whole other expedition went out to check out this George, or yeah, the Crocker Land. What after George he came Crocker. back? Yeah, because he's he couldn't he couldn't get out there. Mm-hmm. He said, "Oh man, there's something out there. We we need to go find that place." Uh, he just he explored all this stuff out there, and he finally got there, and that was one place he just could not get to. And then later on, he convinced uh, Donald Baxter McMillan to go out there. Oh, here, here you go. How about this was this was in, in the newspapers when he after he discovered it. In newspapers of the time, McMillan described Crockerland as the world's last geographical problem. In June 1906, Commander Perry, Robert Perry, from the summit of Cape Thomas Hubbard, at about latitude 83 degrees north, longitude 100 degrees west, reported seeing land glimmering in the northwest, approximately 130 miles away across the polar sea. He did not go there, but he gave it a name in honor of the of the late George Crocker of the Perry Arctic Club. That is Crockerland. Its boundaries and extent can only be guessed at, but I am certain that strange animals will be found there, and I hope to discover a new race of men. So he was so convinced that he's like, there's something crazy out there. We got to go out there. Hmm. But it wasn't until seven years later that what was his name? Donald McMillan. Uh, Donald Baxter McMillan. He was sponsored by the American Museum of Natural History, the American Geographical Society, and the University of Illinois to go explore this this land that was out there. See, so, what? Was, it's just, it's so crazy. Like, how would there, everything up that way is like frozen. It's like completely cold. frozen. Yeah. Then how do they see anything that's green? There's a scientific explanation. There is? I'll get into that in a minute. But okay. it doesn't really make sense in this case because everything up there is frozen tight. So how can they see this? Yeah, I mean, like the old thing is Greenland was named to trick people. Right, exactly. Because it's all frozen and just so anything around there. Yeah. Same thing. I so I don't know why they would assume, oh, my God, there's what? what's this land out here? That's not possible. So they just assumed and they convinced everybody else that, yeah, man, there's something out there. We got to go out there. Yeah. Like if we're, so if we believe what we're told, then it's warmer around the equator. The further north and south you go, it's colder. Right. How is there anything green that far up? Exactly. It's cold due to axial tilt. Yeah. In those spots. Mm hmm. So I don't know what would convince them that. Something green could be out there. I mean, they just saw it. Allegedly, right? They saw it, yeah. So they didn't need convinced. They saw it with their own eyes. (laughs) True. They allegedly saw some green shit there. Yep. And they convinced everybody else that it was out there. National Geographic, history museums, all that. Now, would there be a reason for that? Is there any motive? Would there be any motive for him to say, yeah, I saw something and it was green? Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, like what did he have to gain from that? Sure, notoriety. Yeah, fame? I think so. I don't. I think so. Okay. Because they they would have paid him, they would have paid him to be an explorer, and take pictures and uh, do scientific research. All the the geology, the glaciology, meteorology, all that stuff. They they would have taken scientific studies out there. Wouldn't it be a cool job, man, to go out there? 
an explorer. Chilly out there. Just like people are like, what do you do? I'm an explorer. Yeah, like, that's it. Like whatever, that would be Dora. Awesome. Whatever, Dora. Get out of here. Where's Boots? <laughs> like, just yeah. What are you doing next month? You want to come to my birthday party? Can't. I'm going out, flying around, looking for things. <laughs> just looking to see if I can find something. I'm going to the southern hemisphere. You mean you're going to the southern hemisphere? That you can't. <laughs> gonna take a boat. I'm just gonna keep on going, see what I find. <laughs> that would be okay. But I meant like nowadays we know that there's if you sail far enough in one direction, you're gonna hit land. The ice wall. I mean that's that's one option. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one scenario. <laughs> Actually, if you go far enough south, you could just traverse east and westward, and you might never hit land, right? Oh yeah, I guess. Could you be so – the distance between the bottom of South America and the top, the smallest area between South America and Antarctica, I wonder if you're right in the middle of that, can you see landmass on either side? I have no and, idea. And I guess for that matter, if you go west from California, eventually you're just going to be in the middle of nowhere. As long as you can keep sailing west, you'll get there, but just yeah, ocean My guess would be you wouldn't see landmass. Like that's – that's still a pretty large distance there. Between South America and Antarctica? Yeah. So if you just sail east and west from that point, you'll never see anything. You'll just be rotating around the bottom of that, bottom of the old sphere, the old globe. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe it's flat, man. Or maybe it's flat. Well, back in the day, nobody knew anything. So people... <laughs> the Pirate Look, History honestly, Podcast was, was awesome. They... The what? I'm sorry, in, I, I interrupted you. The what podcast? The Pirate History Podcast. Okay. They took ships down uh, from Europe, and they could sail the coast. You know, they could see Africa. They could sail all the way down to the bottom of Africa, and they just kind of stuck to that that section of land as long as they could see it. And then from a point in Africa, you could sail so far west to an island where you could just barely see the coast of Africa from that island. And then they're like, mm, shit, there's a lot of water out there. Mm-hmm. When are we going to go? And eventually they did. Took off west from there, and eventually they found land. And then they were like, oh, okay. Well, there's land out there. Let's just keep on going out there. We need a couple weeks of supplies and just sail west. Okay, well, there's this land. And they started sailing around the rest of the land. So it's all been explored. Well, most of the world, anyway. Or yeah, the problem is, like, we haven't explored in the oceans. Down under the oceans, you mean? Yeah. Like, barely. We don't know what the hell's in there. No. We know where the land ends, and that's it. Yeah, like, there could be a kraken down there. That's why you don't sail in certain parts of the sea. <laughs> Sirens. Shit, mermaids could be real. Yeah. Just because we don't see them around here? That's a lot of water to hide in. And they yeah. can hide in it. They keep finding new stuff all the time. Yeah, there's some people looking up at the stars. They're like, oh, well, we found this thing. But we're still finding stuff here. Yeah. Just imagine all the crap we'd find if we go exploring on a different planet. We go to the moon, we'll probably still find crap on the moon. I bet if they look hard enough, they could find something on the moon. I think maybe not life, but something weird. It's on the dark side. It's the side we can't see. China's there, man. Israel tried to get there. Huh? Israel tried to get there. Nope. Just populated it with tardigrades. Right now, the tardigrades are just wreaking havoc on that. Like they went to the dark side of the moon and just destroying the Chinese rover. <laughs> They're reconfiguring it. 
Yeah. This is our turf now. They're little cyborg tardigrades now. <laughs> just taking parts off the lander. <laughs> Did you ever see that South Park where Cartman, he got, uh, he got like sea people and then. Sea monkeys? Yeah. And then somehow, I don't, semen ended up in the water. Then they started evolving like crazy. That, that's <laughs> just what I picture the tardigrades up there doing. Like, like they're just evolving so fast because their lifespans, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're just evolving. Like it looks super fast to us. Just, that's what I picture. But they're just burning through lifetimes in our own single lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> like us to a big sea turtle. Yeah. 150? But that's got nothing to do with a hollow earth. Nope. So for this Crocker land, Donald Baxter McMillan took off from Brooklyn Navy Yard on July 2nd, 1913. Two weeks later, at midnight on July 16th, the ship struck rocks while trying to avoid an iceberg. <laughs> McMillan blamed the collision on the captain, who was drunk at the time. <laughs> the expedition transferred to another ship, the Eric, and eventually arrived at Eta, or Eta, in the northwest Greenland, on the second week of August. The next three weeks were spent constructing a large eight-room shed with electricity generation capabilities that was to serve as the local headquarters at the expedition, or of the expedition. An attempt was also made to set up a radio room, but it was not successful, and the expedition was never able to establish reliable radio communication with the outside world. So these guys were just out there, and they they made some trips. They made preliminary trips to place supply caches along the route. Okay, we want to go. We're going so far that way, so we're going to go so we're going to go part way and set up a supply cache and then come back. Mm-hmm. Then we're gonna another day. We're gonna hit that cache. Then we're gonna go forward some. And set up another cache. So like leapfrogging out so they could yeah. have small areas. It was McMillan and then a couple other guys, Green, Ekblaw, and Seven Inuit set off on the 1,200-mile journey to Crockerland on March 11, 1914. The temperature was many degrees below zero and weather conditions were very poor. They, The party reached the 4,700-foot-high uh, Betstad Glacier, which took them three days to climb. Can you imagine Jeez. that? You're just climbing for three days. Where do you stop? How do you hang on? You sleep? Yeah, haven't you seen those those rock climbers that sleep on the side of a mountain? No. They, like, hang a tent, dude. They It's, it's insane. They hang their bed, and they sleep right there. No. The next day, they wake up and just keep going. No. Mm-mm. I'm not doing that. Me either. The temperature dropped dramatically, and Ekblaw suffered severe frostbite. So... He was evacuated out of there. See ya. You're off the trip, buddy. One by one, the other members of the party gave up and turned back. By the time the expedition reached the edge of the Arctic Ocean on April 11th, only McMillan, Green, and two Inuit, Plugatok and Itukasuk, Itukasuk, I-T-T-U-K-U-S-U-K. They don't have any other vowels. They just use you. Yeah, go with it. (laughs) Whatever you said. (laughs) The four dog sleds set off across the treacherous sea ice, avoiding thin patches and expanses of open water, and eventually on April 21st, the party saw what appeared to be a huge island on the northwestern horizon. As McMillan later said, hills, valleys, snow-capped peaks extending through at least 120 degrees of the horizon. So you imagine looking out, if you look right in the middle of it, then 60 degrees in each direction. So almost your entire field of vision Mm -hmm. is 
is this landmass out there, hills and valleys and snow-capped peaks. But the one of the Inuit guys, uh, uh, Pugatak, an Inuit hunter with 20 years of experience of the area, explained that it was just an illusion. He called it Pujak, which means mist. However, McMillan insisted they press on, even though it was late in the season and the sea ice was breaking up. For five days they went on, following the mirage. Finally, on April 27th, after they had covered some 125 miles of dangerous ice, McMillan was forced to admit that Pugatak was right. The land that they had sighted was in fact a mirage. It was probably a rare form of mirage called a Fata Morgana. Did you ever hear that? Is that what they call the... Uh... Fata Morgana. Oh, man. Flat earthers use this term, some kind of mirage. Yeah, yeah, it's a Fata Morgana mirage from, or Fata Morgana. Yeah, but I, I think they use a different term for it. Anyway, go ahead. But it was it's named after the Arthurian sorceress, Morgan Le Fay, because it looks like if you're looking, if all the conditions are right and there's some, there's actually something out there, it actually looks like something's floating off of the horizon. So t- sometimes if the weather's just right, I think it's happened in Hong Kong or China. It looks it's a like floating a floating city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's what they're seeing. It's this Fata Morgana mirage. That's crazy. But somehow they they thought it was only 130 miles out and they could from where they were, whether they had binoculars or what, they're like, "All right, well, it covers about 120 degrees of our vision and it's about 130 miles out there." I don't know how they determined all this stuff. I don't know. But, but what I am so curious about, sure, it was a mirage, and wh- they went out to it, but where was the image originating from? Exactly. Because <laughs> when I looked at it, I actually looked at it on Google Earth. I went to that spot, and I went out, and I measured to the next closest landmass that was northwest of that position, and it was like 1,236 miles away. It's a little teeny tiny island north of russia yeah like if it didn't originate from somewhere then it would have to be a hallucination but you don't have shared hallucinations right and this guy the guy that's been out there many times is like no man it was just an illusion it's just a pujak yeah so he's seen it before he's seen it from that spot before apparently he didn't know what the other guy was talking about he thought it was actual land but those guys took off anyway to go check it out. So McMillan wrote, The day was exceptionally, exceptionally clear, not a cloud or trace of mist. If land could be seen, nor was our time. Now was our time. Yes, there it was. Could even be seen without a glass, extending from north, extending from southwest true to north-northeast. Our powerful glasses, however, brought out more clearly the dark background in contrast with the white. The whole resembling hills... Valleys, snow-capped peaks to such a degree that had we not been out on the frozen sea for 150 miles, we would have staked our lives upon its reality. Our judgment then, as now, is that this was a mirage or loom of the sea ice. So they, like, <sighs> slumped their shoulders and turned around and headed back. Actually, I could kind of see that now maybe reflecting off of the sea, off of the ice, maybe projecting it up to where it looks like a landmass, because I don't know. But they physically saw green, snow-capped hills, or snow-capped mountains and all and that. It didn't actually say green. It just said, brown more clearly the dark background in contrast with the white, the whole resembling hills, 
valleys and snow-capped peaks to such a degree. Mm. But he's talking about the hills and he's talking about snow-capped peaks. Wouldn't he just say everything was just white if it was just white? Why would he specifically say snow-capped hills? Right. Unless it was just rocky. Could be. But maybe it was just some some ice out there somewhere and it was – I guess we could explain it away all night between the water – and then a mirage with the with the ice above it, and there was just enough heat from the sun, and it flipped it around to the yeah. Fatamorgana mirage, like a reflection. Maybe it was a little misty, so yeah. it really kind of put it up there for him. Well, apparently it happens all the time. I don't know if it happens in currently in modern times, but the the guy saw it seven years before when he was out there. And then the their Inuit tour guide, he's like, oh, dude, I've seen it a bunch of times. Yeah. We call it this. That's how many times we've seen it. But How did he get there? Oh, the Inuit guy? Yeah. Weren't they on a ship? They they went from one ship to the other, and then they, uh, they grabbed a bunch of these guys. Yeah, but how would they see it? It's not like, like they didn't have ships. Oh, no, they didn't. I think it was... Mostly just trekking along the ice. Greenland people, I mean, they've been out there for 20 years. Yeah. But in this article, there was a link to something called Sanikov Land or Sanikov Land. Sanikov Land? S A N N I K O V. It's Russian. Mm hmm. Sanikov? Sanikov. Sanikov? I don't know. Something like nah, that. Yeah, just make one up. <laughs> But when you go to the map for that, that point where they believe the land is, it's in, it's off the coast of northern Russia, off some islands, mm-hmm. and about the general direction that that Cape Thomas Hubbard is. So if you go to this area where you can see the Sonikov land and look out, it's about the same point where you start on Cape Thomas Hubbard and look out in the same direction. So they're either looking at each other, or there's something in between them, up or, in the Arctic, or what? It's a mirage. Or it's a mirage. Of the other land. I mean, if it's a globe, they wouldn't be able to see that far, right? Yeah. I looked that up, too. How far can you actually see? How far is the horizon? So on a on a clear day, you can see for miles and miles and miles. The old saying says... For a six-foot-tall person, the horizon is just a little more than three miles away. That's it. But if you're on Mount Everest and it's a clear day, you can the horizon would be 230 miles away. But somehow these guys were looking at land that was 1,200 miles away? Right. Now, so, was it incredibly tall? Probably not. I mean, that would have to be substantially tall. For them to be able to see it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... It's all just about sea level because they're right at the edge of the sea up there. Know what I mean? Just slightly, maybe a couple hundred feet above sea level. Nothing crazy. Yeah, that's... But 1,200 miles away? I don't know how to take that information, man. So were they were they in Hollow Earth? Is that what they're suggesting or what? Um, or is that what you're, they... que- you're questioning that? That's what I'm questioning is what they were actually seeing. Maybe they were actually looking into the hollow earth. Maybe. So, hang on one second. I put it in my phone because I heard it, and I got to be honest, I don't remember where I heard it from. 
might have been a podcast, might have been something I read. Actually, I'm almost positive it was a podcast. But the the hole to get into Hollow Earth from the north is 1,400 miles wide. The on the north one? Oh, you know what? That's probably the south one because I think the north one is supposed to be the smaller one, right? I think so. No, the south one is the smaller one, according to that map we shared. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So the north one would be... 1,400 miles wide? Yeah. So it's very possible they sailed right in and didn't even realize. Or they they were at the edge of it, and they couldn't get any further. Maybe there's an ice wall. (laughs) Maybe there's an ice wall to protect that area. And it's so high you can't see it from... Well, if you can't see it from the land, but if you fly over it, you'd be able to see it. But if we can only see so far... It's possible that they just, they cruise right into it, not realizing, you know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't mention in the first part, but there's also a theory that we're living on the inside of the Hollow Earth. I I can't wrap my head around that one. Well, you saw the picture I shared, right? Yeah. It looked like a big, like a... But it's kind of interesting, though, because it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Because I was like, if we're living on the inside, how the hell did we ever get night? But I guess according to that picture, all the shit's in the middle, like the the universe, the quote-unquote universe, whatever you want to call it. And then the sun circles that. So when it gets behind the universe, we have nighttime. That's a lot of universe in the middle. I mean, if the universe is as big as they say it is, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just our solar system. That's in this planet. Yeah, maybe maybe our planet is, or maybe they are smaller than NASA <laughs> makes them out to be. I have to break everything that I've ever learned to try to wrap my head around this. I got it. I'm I'm way more on board with Hollow Earth, and we're on the outside than then Hollow you are. Earth. We're on the inside. <laughs> yeah, I'm closer to that one. That we're on the outside of Hollow Earth. With, uh, I don't know, man, could be something on the inside, a lot of something that we don't know. It's very possible. Yeah. I mean, I guess, are you done talking about? Yeah, that was that was the gist of Crockerland. They got out there and they're like, oh, crap. You want to take a break and then we'll talk about somebody who's actually been there? Who? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about him last episode, man. Uh-oh. Mr. Dick Bird. Oh, Dickie Bird. He's coming up already, is he? You you want to hold off on him? No, no. It's I think it's time for Dickie. We'll take a break. Oh, we'll and take we'll a break get... and then we'll come back and we'll decide who we're gonna do. Oh, careful. <laughs> Phrasing. <laughs> you know what I mean. All right, we got to clean this act up. Take a break. Yeah, we'll get it together. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back. We're going to get into some real stuff. Are we? Eventually. Real? <laughs> well, as real as folklore is, for a minute anyway. Or maybe it's actually real. Ooh. 
don't delegitimize it by saying folklore. <laughs> I mean, like, that's how the article starts. <laughs> the Green Children of Woolpit. Yeah. Yeah, this one's pretty interesting. I, I've, I mean, I've only, like, heard about it a little bit, but. Yeah, well, I mean, the tale is during the reign of King Stephen. That was between 1135 and 1154. Not in the morning, but that was the years. Say that again? Between 1135 and 1154 AD. Not AM. He was just assassinated really quickly. Yep. He was only the king for 19 minutes. Beside one of the of the wolf pits that gave the village its name, but how's a wolf pit then? Anyway, their skin it's, was it's green. It's probably just somebody was. They were like, "I'm from wolf pit." And they're like, "Oh, wolf pit, wolf pit." Why did you say that? I swear somebody else just somebody else said that. It was I think it was one of the random podcasts I was listening to for research for the subject about wolf pit. Yeah, it was wolf pit, and then it just kind of slanged its way into wolf pit. Shit, for all I know, I probably listened to the same one. It just stuck in my brain. <laughs> I, if anyone listens to this, I apologize if, if I don't give you credit for that. It's very possible. that's It just subconsciously came to me. <laughs> After all the research, it's just somewhere in all the spongy brain tissue. Yeah. Their skin was green, they spoke an unknown language, and their clothing was unfamiliar. Well, in 1135 to 1154, everything was unfamiliar. If you if you venture too far out of your own village, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. But anyway, Ralph, whoever he is, Ralph reports that the children were taken to the home of Richard De Kane. Ralph and William agree that the pair refused all food for several days until they came across some raw broad beans, which they consumed eagerly. The children gradually adapted to normal food and, in, in time, lost their green color. The boy, who appeared to be the younger of the two, became sickly and died shortly after he and his sister were baptized. He must have been a demon. They baptized him, killed him. That, yeah, probably. See? Now they know. That's where the witches come So that from. must not be his sister, then. Ooh. Not his real sister. No. After learning to speak English, the children, Ralph, says, just the surviving girl, she learned to speak English, Explained that they came from a land where the sun never shone and the light was like twilight. William says the children called their home St. Martin's Land. Ralph adds that everything there was green. According to William, the children were unable to account for their arrival in Woolpit. They had been herding their father's cattle when they heard a loud noise. According to William, the bells of Barry St. Edmunds, and suddenly found themselves by the wolf pit where they were found. Ralph says that they had become lost when they followed the cattle into a cave and, after being guided by the sound of bells, eventually emerged into our land. According to Ralph, the girl was employed for many years as a servant in Richard DeCain's household, where she was considered to be very wanton and impudent. William says that she eventually married a man from King's Lynn, about 40 miles from Woolpit, where she was still living shortly before he wrote. Based on his research... Into Richard DeCain's family history, the astronomer and writer Duncan Lunan has concluded that the girl was given the name Agnes and that she married a royal official named Richard Bear. So she, her and her brother were from some far off land. Green. They were green people. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, know how, what 
I mean, if all they ate was broad beans, maybe they would be green. <laughs> it was just scurvy from childhood. <laughs> like when you eat too many carrots as a baby, you turn orange. <laughs> I think that's what happens, yeah. It happened to me when I was a baby. <laughs> no, dude, I think it's your kidney failing. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, who needs two anyway? That's what I say. You'll be fine with that one. Like eyes. <laughs> you only need one of those. <laughs> Yeah, who needs to see depth? I don't. It's only for snipers, dude. <laughs> and Air Force pilots. Yeah. I'm never going to be either one. That was a kid's rule pit. And actually, Maybe. I've never heard of this being linked with Hollow Earth until we started doing research for this. You heard? I've always like heard the, it being a case of like interdimensional travel. The the children of Woolpit? Yeah, like they went through some sort of portal when they went through that cave and showed up. In our dimension. They were living under a green sun instead of a yellow sun? I don't know. Maybe they were plants. Oh, dude. Maybe they photosynthesized. Eh? I like that one. You know how All some right. plants, if you give them too much water, they, they die. Green. Oh. That's what happened to the boy. Got baptized in too much water and he died. <laughs> <laughs> he got waterlogged. <laughs> he was an evergreen. It didn't need so much water. <laughs> There's like a succulent that you find out in the desert, a cactus. Oh, yeah. There's a little cactus rose. You got too much water. All right. Let's get on with Dickie Bird. What, real quick, was there – did we ever find any alleged openings? Yeah, because this was in – that's in England, isn't it? Yeah. Woolpit? The Children of Woolpit? Yeah. Uh, Suffolk? Suffolk? England? Something like that. I don't know. Uh – Suffolk. Suffolk, yeah, England. There's a village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England, sometime in the 12th century. All right, so, I mean, I'm not great with geography, but I know it's not too, too far from Ireland, right? And there was a bunch there. Right, so I guess it is entirely possible that there was an opening there. Yeah, I don't see why not. But the sign in the village of Woolpit uh, depicts the two green children... So it's it's a folklore that runs through the to this day. The town. Yeah, there's a sign and has two children. It's just a silhouette. Two children next to what looks like a like a, a church with a steeple and then it's either a wolf or a horse to the right of that. I think it's a horse. Village sign depicting the two green children erected in 1977. So somehow this the story just kept going and going and going and going and going. For until they're like, oh, of years. God, fine, fine, we'll make a sign. Come on. It's like the Mothman. Yeah. Like the Mothman legend, now they have a statue for him. <laughs> exactly. All right, we'll make a statue. And then the, uh, what's the other one? Flatwoods monster. There's a Flatwoods, we like weird throne chair thing. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that one's weird. You know, they were the aliens in one of the Zelda games. Which one is it? Aliens? Zelda? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my Tw- God. Twilight Princess. No. Link to the Past? No. Majora's Mask. I think it was Majora's Mask, yeah. 64. Aliens, like, come down. But they are like a uh, like an homage or a rendition of the Flatwoods Monster. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. And some say aliens don't come from off-world. They come from inside. Oh, yeah. I 
have a picture of whether I'm going to wait to share share it for this episode or you've already seen it. Me? If I share it tonight or tomorrow, then everyone will have seen it before this episode comes out Monday. I don't share it yet. <laughs> don't do it yet. Well, I was going to share it to boost the previous episode, part one. Oh. Or I'll wait and do it for part two. I'll wait for part two? Yeah, either one. I not, I kind of want to see it now. Okay. I guess you could send it to me. All right. I'll do that. Well, you just, you get rolling with old Dickie Bird. Admiral Bird was, I mean, he's well-respected. I mean, he's an admiral. Yes. He, he's not some Joe no, he's Blow. No, he's no slouch. Right. So he has this flight log from where, when he was... He was going to do uh exploration flight to the North Pole or over the North Pole. Okay. And he did this in uh, February 19th of 1947. And I'll just quickly go through the flight log here for you. 0600 hours. All preparations are complete for our flight northward, and we are airborne with full fuel tanks at 610 hours. 620 hours. Fuel mixture on starboard engine seems too rich. Adjustment made. And Pratt Whitney's are running smoothly. I, a Pratt, what's a Pratt Whitney? I assume that's the engines. Zero seven thirty hours. Radio check with base camp. All is well and radio reception is normal. Zero seven forty hours. Note slight oil leak in starboard engine. Oil pressure sure. Oh, oil pressure indicator seems normal. However, oh eight hundred hours. Slight turbulence noted from easterly direction at altitude of twenty three twenty one feet. Correction at 1,700 feet. No further turbulence, but tailwind increases. Slight adjustment in throttle controls. Aircraft performing very well now. 08.15 hours. Radio check with base camp. Situation normal. 08.30 hours. Turbulence encountered again. Increased altitude to 2,900 feet. Smooth flight conditions again. 09.10 hours. Vast ice and snow below. Note coloration of yellowish nature and dis... Disperse in a linear pattern, altering course for a better examination of this color pattern below. Note reddish or purple color also. Circle this area two full turns and return to assigned compass heading. Position check made again to base camp and relay information concerning colorations in the ice and snow below. 0910 again. Both magnetic and gyro compasses beginning to gyrate and wobble. We are unable to hold our heading by instrumentation. Take bearing with sun compass. Yet all seems well. The controls are seemingly slow to respond and have sluggish quality, but there is no no indication of icing. So I guess he's saying like it doesn't look like it's freezing up, but things are starting to it's get a little, little wonky. Sluggish. Here. Yeah. Oh nine fifteen hours. In the distance is what appears to be mountains. Oh nine forty nine hours. 29 minutes elapsed flight time from the first sighting of the mountains. It is no illusion. They are mountains and consisting of a small range they have never seen before. 0955 hours. Altitude changed to 2950 feet, encountering strong turbulence again. 1000 hours. We are crossing over the small mountain range and still proceeding northward as best as can be ascertained. Beyond the mountain range is what appears to be a valley with a small river or stream running through the center portion. There should be no green valley below. Something is definitely wrong and abnormal here. We should be over ice and snow. To the port side are great forests growing on the mountain slopes. Our navigation instruments are still spinning. The gyroscope is oscillating back and forth. 
10.05 hours. I alter at altitude to 1,400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. It is green with either moss or a type of tight knit grass. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No! It looks more like a mammoth. <laughs> this is incredible. Yet there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars to better examine the animal. It is confirmed. It is definitely a mammoth-like animal. Report this to base camp. This is crazy. <laughs> 10.30 hours. Encountering more rolling green hills now. The external temperature indicator reads 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Continuing on our heading now. Navigation instruments seem normal now. I am puzzled over their actions. Attempt to contact base camp. Radio is not functioning. <laughs> is it? I mean, it sounds like he flew into the hollow earth. I mean. At this point, yeah, yeah. He's at 74 degrees. He's seeing a mammoth. What, what like is happening? Streams. He's seeing moss or tight-knit grass. He's going nuts at this point. Yeah. Oh, 1130 hours. Countryside below is more level and normal, if I may use that word. Ahead we spot what seems to be a city. This is impossible. Aircraft seems light and oddly buoyant. The controls refuse to respond. My God! Off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They are closing rapidly alongside. They are disc-shaped and have radiant quality to them. They are close enough now to see the markings on them. It is a type of swastika. This is fantastic. Where are we? What happened? A tug at the controls again. They will not respond. We are caught in an invisible vice grip of some type. 11.35 hours. Our radio crackles and a voice comes through in English with what perhaps is a slight Nordic or Germanic accent. The message is, Welcome, Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax, Admiral. You are in good hands. That's a good accent. I like it. <laughs> I note the engines of our planes have stopped running. The aircraft is under some strange control. is now turning itself. The controls are useless. Oh, shit. Tractor beam. They got him, man. <laughs> 11.40 hours. Another radio message received. We begin the landing process now. And in moments, the plane shudders slightly. Begins a descent as though caught in some great unseen elevator. The downward motion is negligible. And we touch down with only a slight jolt. 11.45 hours. I am making a hasty last entry in the flight log. Several men are approaching on foot toward our aircraft. They are tall with blonde hair. In the distance is a large shimmering city pulsating with rainbow hues of color. I do not know what is going to happen now, but I see no signs of weapons on these on those approaching. I hear now a voice ordering me by name to open the cargo door. I comply and log. I mean, that's that's the flight that's, log. Yeah. That, well, it's not quite over, is it? Well, no. I mean, that's just the the log of his flight. Right, right. While he was in the plane. Yeah. I guess what what happens is were you gonna say something? Yeah. I was just looking at the timeline of this. This flight log, supposedly the timeline is February nineteenth, nineteen forty seven. Operation High Jump, I was just looking at that while you were reading that over. The timeline of Operation High Jump, it began it commenced on August 26, 1946, and it ended 
in late February 1947. So when before we started recording, we were debating this. But there is a possibility that it actually happened because Operation A High Jump ended in late February. The expedition was terminated due to the early approach of winter and worsening weather conditions. So there's no reason why he wasn't actually in Operation High Jump business when that flight log was written. Know what I mean? You with me? So you're saying this flight actually happened immediately after High Jump? Oh, immediately, like 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 they're on their way, and then boom, they filled them up, and they said, "All right, you're going tomorrow." Or maybe he just did it himself. Was there any particular reason for that flight? Or he was just bored? He's like, oh man, high jump was, it was boring, so I, I, I gotta do something. Well, it was just an exploration flight. So, uh, I mean, when you're in the military, like, I assume that has to be an order, right? You can't just do it for funsies. <laughs> ah, that's my weekend off. I'm going to North Pole. See you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was it a weekend? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it mattered back then, because everybody was like, "Huh, oh, man, just work, 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 work." It's it's a war. What are you doing? Don't sit down. Yeah, weekend. What? <sighs> That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, you mean workday six and workday seven? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe they both things could have happened. Earlier today, I was literally like, "Oh, pff, that blows the whole lid off off the whole thing." He never went to the North Pole, but now that I actually look at the timeline, yes. I can see both things happening. It's possible. There's it's more possible. potential. Yeah, depending on what they consider late February ending high jump. Right. So and then, and then moving into Operation Windmill. I mean, is it possible high jump was still going on and he decided to book it back to the U.S.? Oh, man, that's treason. I mean, maybe they ordered him back. They say, hey, you know what? While you guys, why don't you shoot up to the North Pole, see if you can flank them? What? While whoever went down the South Pole was, they went in, went into the Hollow Earth from the South Pole and they wanted to go to the North Pole to get them? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they went to the South Pole to find the Nazis or whatever. And then they were like, hey, Admiral, why don't you go to the North Pole, fly in through the Hollow Earth and come up behind the Nazis and take them out? That would have taken a long freaking time because first of all, he'd have to fly the entire circumference from South Pole to North Pole, and then he'd have to fly the entire diameter <laughs> from well, North Pole to South I mean, Pole. Maybe he might have flown back to the U.S., fueled up and whatever. Maybe took a nap, had a little bite to eat, you know, a little pizza pocket or something, <laughs> or a hot pocket. And 1947. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, follow, I'm following your story. Uh, <laughs> you know, he grabbed a little bite to eat. Some pizza rolls. And they're, and, then, and they're like, Dickie Bird, Dickie Bird, come on, man. You got to go to North Pole. Let's go. Let's go. You ain't got time to sit down. And he said, hold on. Let me finish my tang. <laughs> there's no tang. Oh, like, yeah. There's not astronauts. Yet. We're still or 20 away. There? We're 20 years away from astronauts. Oh, so that was another technology they got from the mm, <laughs> from the aliens? Was maybe. Space orange juice. <laughs> another weird thing. So, I mean, you know all the thing about the Germans being so sophisticated, like the Nazis being so sophisticated, they had allegedly they were working on like flying saucer technology. Yeah. They flee uh, allegedly to Antarctica and now Admiral Byrd is seeing flying saucers with swastikas. 
they come out, they talk to them with German accents, and they're blonde-haired people. <laughs> Wait a minute. He's probably f- freaking out right now. Yeah, he's like, he's thinking, oh shit, we, you know, we won the war, but now they have the inside of the earth. And there's nothing he can do about it. He's got, he's got tractor beams. He's, he's got these escorts bringing him in. He's got these tall guys coming up to the ship. Yeah. Or his uh, airplane. Can't do anything about it. Welcome, Admiral. <laughs> we are leaving you now, Admiral. Your controls are free. <laughs> and I don't yeah. even know how to pronounce this other one. Oh, provider shine. Where's that at? Scroll down a bit. Two fifteen hours. I think that's Alviderzane. That's how like, you spell that? I, I would have never Alf, guessed how you spell Alf that. Alviderzane. In German, in German, these interior Earth people were telling him Alviderzane in German. Yeah. So this was like eight minutes after the World War Two ended. N- not to mention during shit. At some point, there was like. What was it like two thousand? What was it? Yeah, two thousand scientists from Germany and Italy. They just vanished with almost yeah. a million other people. Right. Wasn't there was a whole bunch of U-boats that left after the mm-hmm. war? German mm-hmm. U-boats. They left after the war, and there are some theories, some ideas that we never actually saw the body of Hitler. Yeah. Well, I think what happened was he allegedly killed himself, and then didn't his officers light the bodies on fire? Was it his officers, or was it the Russians that came in, like, immediately after that? Uh, I don't know. Somebody lit the bodies on fire, cause, so we couldn't – nobody could verify. Right. Weren't they buried? Weren't they buried, like, right outside the building? Yeah, it was, it was something crazy. Like, they were buried – then they were dug back up again, and then they were shipped off somewhere else. From my point of view right now, from my perspective, what I've learned so far, there's it's a lot of kind of questionable stuff that happened going yeah. on around that. But then there was a whole bunch of U-boats, German U-boats, that hauled ass out of there. There was a couple that popped up in Brazil, mm-hmm. Argentina area, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about Joey Mangala another day, old Joey Mangles. Oh, sick. F. And he it's pretty much sounds like he got away. Yeah. And then everybody else went to Antarctica. So that's another idea of what Operation High Jump was about, was getting down there because they thought maybe that's where they were headed. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he Emerald Bird took 4,000 military troops. <laughs> I know. High Four Jump's objectives, thousands. according to the U.S. Navy report of the operation, were, number one, Training personnel and testing equipment in frigid conditions. Okay, I could buy that because the Russians, thats they only live in icy conditions. That's all they are. So, And then Germany tried to attack them in icy conditions, and Russia's like, <laughs> you guys attack them in winter. No dice. Yeah. And then Finland's even, even tougher than that. Did you hear about the battle between Russia and Finland mm. in, in World War II? No. Russia just kept sending guys in. Finland, Finland just kept taking them out because they had their skis, they had their uh, their snowshoes. They were just walking on top of the snow. Meanwhile, Russia's got these black tanks and this black <laughs> winter gear, and Finland's just taking them out. And Russia just keeps sending guys and tanks in over and over and over. And eventually, 
Finland was overwhelmed just by the sheer amount of people coming at them. Exactly, yeah. So they were fully prepared for winter conditions. So that's uh, officially that was part of the objectives for Operation High Jump was to get Americans used to those conditions. But eh, I can buy that. Number two, consolidating and extending the United States sovereignty over the largest practicable area of the Antarctic continent. Publicly denied as a goal even before the expedition ended. How about that? No, no. We don't need any more land. We don't re- that's not really happening. Okay. Number three, determining the feasibility of establishing, maintaining, and utilizing bases in the Antarctic and investigating possible base sites. I can buy that. Number four, developing techniques for establishing, maintaining, and utilizing air bases on ice with a particular attention to later applicability of such techniques to operations in interior Greenland. Where conditions are comparable to those in the Antarctic. Eh, Makes sense. Number five, amplifying existing stores of knowledge of electromagnetic, geological, geographic, hydrographic, and meteorological propagation conditions in the area. Number six, supplementary objectives of the Nanook expedition, a smaller equivalent conducted off eastern Greenland. So that was the, those were the official objectives minus number two. Consolidating extending the United States sovereignty because everybody's got a piece of Antarctica now. What do you mean? If you look at the map of Antarctica, every every little chunk there's a there's a different name of the a piece of ocean around Antarctica. But if you look at the map, there's not actually any kind of land features that would say that would um, differentiate different bays and capes and all that stuff. It's just like Okay, from this point to this point is Norway's, and from this point to this point is Russia's, and from this point to this point is France's. Yeah, but I think that's just for research. I don't think that. I don't they only think get a they, sli- they get a sliver of the pie. Yeah, I don't think anybody actually owns any land there. Oh, well, they named everything just because. Put, put some buoys out there. Red, white, and blue. To red, white, and blue is the U.S. Red, white, and blue. To red, white, and blue is France. <laughs> Everybody's got everybody's got a little red, white, and blue, orange, green, and white. A little bit of Ireland. So officially, officially, that's what Operation High Jump was about. But unofficially, that was old Dickie Bird in charge of all this stuff. What were they? What were they after? That was a lot of freaking things and people involved. They went down for a fight. That's that. That's what it looks like. You. Ha- I mean, don't tell me you went down just to check it out. You went down for a fight. You were ready for a fight. Oh, yeah. Do you have a list of all the things that were sent down? Uh, no, I don't. Not in front of me. Uh, participating units. Task Force 68 was headed by Rear Admiral Richard H. Cruzen, USN Commanding. Eastern Group. Task Group 68.3. Captain George J. Defec, USN Commanding. Seaplane Tender USS Plain Pine Island. I'm not going to read down all the commanding officers. Destroyer USS Bronson, tanker USS Canesto, Canestillo, Western Group, Task Group 68.1, headed by Charles A. Bond, seaplane tender USS Currituck, destroyer USS Henderson, tanker USS Kakapon, Central Group, Task Group 68.2, was headed by Richard A. Cruzen again. Communications of flagship USS Mount Olympus, supply ship USS Yancey, supply ship USS Merrick, Submarine USS Senate, Icebreaker USS Burden Island, Icebreaker USC GC Northwind, 
carrier group, task group 68.4, was headed by Dickie Bird, Richard E. Bird. Aircraft carrier and flagship USS Philippine Sea, base group, task group 68.5, headed by Captain Clifford M. Campbell. And he was the commanding officer of what would have been the base of Little America, number four. With all... Within all that stuff, there's all these choppers and then all the personnel, all the soldiers, everybody that was all, had to command all that stuff and be part of all those things, along with media that was there, too. Yeah, and I mean, some skeptics would say, I'm sure, that they took all that equipment, all the different types of shit, just to see how it would do in that kind of temperature. Makes sense. I... But... That's a it, lot. It seems like you went down for a fight. With all that? You went down ready because you knew something. Yeah, something was... You knew they, that you were missing were 2,000 German scientists and At a that bazillion point? people. Yeah. Not to... I don't want to really get off topic, but I do kind of want to go through what he dealt with when he went into the North Pole. You know what yeah. I mean? Like what was said to him? Because there's something really, really interesting that I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say before. All right. And it can it kind of came to me. But I mean, we can continue with the high jump stuff. I just don't want to forget to go over this. Well, I think high jump is good now because I mean, what what he did, his experience at the North Pole happened directly after high jump. We've already said high jump. Seems like a little excessive. They're just going down for research. Yeah. Into these different conditions. So, so this allegedly happened after high jump. Yes. Or during, whatever, <laughs> however you want to say it. You remember me saying, like, they land him and, like, these people are coming or whatever. They tell him to open a door and he does. Yeah. Uh, so then he writes, all this stuff's wrote down in his diary. I don't know. He's taken by these people. And it says, uh, we were boarded on a small platform like conveyance with no wheels. It moves us toward the glowing city with great swiftness. As we approach, the city seems to be made of crystal, of a crystal material. And it says, like, it appears to be right out of, uh, design board, design board of Frank Lloyd Wright, or perhaps more correctly, out of a Buck Rogers setting. Woo, Buck Rogers, baby. Yeah. So they're given this, uh, warm beverage. He said it tastes like nothing like he's ever tasted before. It's delicious. About 10 minutes later, uh, the, the host come into the quarters and announced that I'm to accompany them. He didn't have a choice, so he just he went. And then one of the hosts says, well, actually, they, they, descend, they go into like an elevator and they go downward. And uh, then it stops and it says there's like a rose colored light that seems to be coming from the, the walls themselves. Not like lights, the walls are self-illuminated. Like a bioluminescence. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it says, one of the beings motions for us to stop before a great door. Over the door is an inscription that I cannot read. The great door slides no noiselessly open, and I'm beckoned to enter. One of the hosts, uh, one of the hosts says, have no fear, Admiral. Uh, you are to have an audience with the master. No, no, you have to do that again in a German oh. accent. <laughs> have no fear, Admiral. You are here to have an audience with the master. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes inside and he 
began to see his surroundings. He was greeted by eyes, uh, the most beautiful sight. His eyes were greeted with the most beautiful sight of his entire existence. Uh, it is, in fact, too beautiful and wondrous to describe. It is exquisite and delicate. I do not think there exists a human term that can describe it in any detail with justice. Uh, my thoughts are interpreted in a cordial manner by a warm, rich voice of melodious quality. I build you welcome to our domain, Admiral. I see a man with delicate features and with the etching of years upon his face. He is seated at a long table. He motions me to sit down in one of the chairs. After I'm seated, he places his fingertips together and smiles. He speaks softly again and conveys the following. We have let you enter here because you are of noble character and well-known on the surface world, Admiral. Boom. Well-known. On the surface world. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah. He's well-known on the surface world. So at this point, he is 58 years old. In 1947, he was 58. Yeah. And he was well-known on the surface world. Oh, actually, the very next line. Surface world. I half gasped under my breath. (laughs) Yes, the master replies with a smile. You're in the domain of the Ariani, the inner world of the Earth. We We shall not long delay your mission, and you will be safely escorted back to the surface and for a distance beyond. But now, Admiral... I should tell you why you have been summoned here. Our interest rightly begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was at the alarming time, to- at that alarming time, we sent our flying machines, the flugelrods, to your surface world to investigate what your race had done. That is, of course, past history now, my dear Admiral, but I must continue on. You see, We have never interfered before in your race's wars and barbarity, and now we must, for you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for man, namely, that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the powers of your world, and yet they do not heed. Now you have been chosen to be witness here that our world does exist. You see, our culture and science is many thousands of years beyond your race, Admiral. I interrupted. But what does that have to do with me, sir? The master's eyes seemed to penetrate deeply into my mind, and after studying me for a few moments, he replied, Your race has now reached the point of no return, and there are those among you who would destroy your very world rather than relinquish their power as they know it. I nodded as the master continued. Now here's here's what I'm talking about. In 1945 and afterward, we tried to contact your race, but our efforts were met with hostility. Our flugel rods were fired upon. So that was 1945. Yeah. Is it possible that, I mean, I know it was, when was the meeting with Eisenhower? In the 50s? Who did he meet with? Uh, allegedly the Greys. Oh, oh, oh. The Nordics. Uh, 54? Yeah, 54. That sounds right. So in 1945 and afterward, we tried to contact your race about the nuclear weapons. But 45 is when they were actually fired, in August of 45. Yeah. So they, they right then is when they came out, they're like, whoa, 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 guys, whoa, whoa. And in that meeting with Eisenhower, allegedly the it was the Nordics who are tall with blonde hair. They tried to convince him to get to 
look, we'll give you technology, just get rid of the nukes. Yeah. And that's basically what this dude is saying. But that was later on. Yeah. That was that was nine years later, after this meeting. Yeah, but he's saying starting in 45, they've been doing it, and they're still, maybe they're still, you know what I mean? Like, every maybe Roswell, while, huh? Yeah, so every, so yeah, maybe Roswell. Roswell could have been an attempt, maybe that just crashed. So that was February 47. Roswell? No. February 47 was with uh, Bird when he went in. When was Roswell? Wasn't that 47? I think it was, it, yeah, it was 47, but um, was it in June? Yeah, June 14th, 1947. So just months after yeah. Bird went down. Yeah. And then they have this. Interesting, interesting. There's a whole lot of correlations that we're correlating together that have no business being correlated together. Or do we? Or do they? Maybe we're just putting this together. Oh, man. I like it. So <clears throat> but at what point – so they knew about the atomic bombs after 47, and when did they attempt – is there – do you know of an attempt of communication after the bombs dropped and before Bird? No. So that would be late late 45 after August. August 6th and 9th were the drop dropping of the bombs. Well, that was the dropping of the bomb. Right. Maybe so they, they tried to contact us beforehand once we got the power. What So they knew it was coming. So that was the so you're thinking it was the Nazi UFO then. It was uh, uh, no. Cuz he no. does say our interest rightly begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. So yeah, so it was in August. Late late 45 to sometime 46, anytime in 46. I don't know. I don't know anything off the top of my head that happened in that time period. Do you? No, I don't. Odd goings-ons? I don't know then. But that's very good. Yes. I mean, I'm sure if we looked into it, we might be able to find some stuff. All arms road will come up. And then one of these days, the light's going to go off and be like, oh, my God. There it is. We're going to text each other at 9.23 in the morning one day. And <laughs> <laughs> we found it. This is it. But anyway. I mean, he just, like this guy, he goes on to talk about, you know, that they've even been pursued by our fighter planes. And uh, so basically he's, he, he sends them back, and he's like, I'm going to send you back with a warning. Go tell them to stop this shit now. Yeah. Basically, he's like, stop it with the fucking bombs. <laughs> yeah. Then he says, farewell, my son. He spoke, then he gestured with a lovely, slender hand and a motion of peace, and our meeting was truly ended. Hold on. There was a 45 and afterward, we tried to contact your race, but our efforts were met with hostility. Yes, even pursued with malice and animosity by your fighter. Did they have fighter planes in 45? I guess they they did. I mean, what, World War II. what they called fighter planes, yeah. <laughs> right. Um. There's a great storm gathering in your world, a black fury that will not spend itself for many years. There will be no answer in your arms. There will be no safety in your science. It may rage on until every flower of your culture is trampled and all human things are leveled in vast chaos. Your recent war was only a prelude of what is yet to come for your race. We here see it more clearly with each hour. Do you say I am mistaken? No, he answers. It happened once before. The Dark Ages came and they lasted for more than 500 years. Yes, my son replied the master. 
The dark ages, they will come now for your race, will cover the earth like a pall, but believe that some of your race will live through the storm. Beyond that, I cannot say. So he was he was saying about some kind of dark ages coming if we don't straighten up. I mean, nuclear winter. Yeah. That's very possible. Yeah. So did we straighten up? I mean, luckily, the we thing we have news. going for us is we are kind of a powerhouse. So it's – what is the thing? It's um, the exception of mutual destruction. So, like, Russia knows if they launch a missile at us, we're launching one back at them. So yeah, if if we get hit, they're getting hit as well. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, that's what it is. So it's – so I mean, right now we're kind of we're just like balanced out right now. We have the only thing we got to worry about is the Joker, the wild card, North Korea. <laughs> if they ever get their shit together, Ugh. if they get their shit together, we're in trouble. Yeah, because then they're going to fire nukes at Russia because they can reach Russia a lot closer than they can the U.S. Unless they're in cahoots with Russia, and then Russia's going to fire back, and then we're like Russia, what the hell did you do? And then we're going to fire nukes at Russia, and Russia's going to fire nukes back at us. MAD, baby. Good night. Yeah. But nuclear winter then. Yeah. For if anyone survives that. That'd be real bad. I mean, shit. Yosemite. If the super volcano blows, we're in trouble there too. Yeah. That's going to be, what, like three quarters of the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, we'll be good over here. Probably. Maybe. I think we, I mean, still the ash is going to carry, but I think we'll still be good here. But the, but the then Midwest that's just be, until a tsunami comes and wipes us out. Yeah, because it's gonna if that thing blows, it's gonna shake everything up, and that's gonna just put a tsunami from the west coast, from California across the Pacific, and it's just gonna keep on carrying until it gets to the east coast. I mean, I'm almost positive there's, I want to say it's on the northwest part of Africa. There's like a super volcano that if it blows, they're predicting. A chunk of it is going to fall in the ocean and can send shit our way. A massive tsunami? I mean, that would be my guess. If a chunk of a mountain falls into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. That'd be a big old wave. I saw that. I mean, I saw it on, I want to say History Channel or Science or something. It was years and years ago, and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so I was scared when 2012 was coming. December 21st, 2012? Uh-huh. The end of the Mayan calendar? Yeah, because I was like, I don't, nothing's going to happen. I'm like, but what if? <laughs> what if it happens? I kept like looking in the sky. I was looking for an asteroid or something. But that's when everybody woke up. What? Is that? <laughs> or Mandela? I don't know. Mandela? When everybody woke up? There's a theory <laughs> about 2012 and the Mandela effect. Oh, well, we'll get into that then. Oh. I didn't know there was a theory. I thought we were just going to go down the list. But, man, we have covered a lot of ground. The north of the South Pole. Yeah, and, I mean, there's still a ton more, like... Oh, yeah. A lot more theories, more people talking about it. Just, I mean, we can't do a three-parter, four-parter, five-parter. We no. could have did a, a more-parter on Flat Earth, too, guys. We just, we try to condense this shit. <laughs> kind of. Do you know who uh, Richard E. Bird's ancestors are? Did you look at that? Yeah, shit. And it, it eludes me right now. 
John they, aren't they they're part of the JFK yeah. assassination, right? I don't know about that. But no, I'm talking about further back. Oh, his oh, ancestors, duh. Yeah. The first families of Virginia. He is he has a direct line. And I try to trace it and I only got back so far. Then I try to trace ahead of these two and I can only get up so far. So there's like there's two or three generations between the richer bird that of what we've been talking about and the descendants of John Rolfe and Pocahontas. What? Yeah, he has a direct line to Pocahontas and, well, John Rolfe, but, but you would know Pocahontas more than John Rolfe. How about that? That's pretty cool. That's weird. Yeah. I heard his, I guess it would be his descendants. Birds? Yeah. I forget who. They owned the depository in Dallas. Oh, really? Yeah. This bird was born in 1888, and he died in 57. So only Kennedy was shot 12 years later in 69? Well, that's when we get to the moon. No, uh, 73? What? 63. No. 63 sounds better. Because I'm pretty sure 69 is when we got to the moon. Yeah, yeah I 63. think it was 63. Yeah, 63. I knew it was something three. So only six years after Richard Byrd died is when Kennedy died. Whatever that means. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it could be nothing. Just kind of interesting. Yeah, man. That's what we do. We make correlations when there's no business correlations being made. I mean, it, just like the whole Lincoln, Kennedy. That whole thing? <laughs> yeah, like that. I mean, <laughs> it's all a coincidence, but it's still pretty interesting. I don't know, man. Too many coincidences in a row like that. That's Then what? Then it's crazy? Or then it's too real. You're not woke enough to get it. <laughs> Man, we were on task a lot in this one, I think. We come down this one pretty good. I think. I mm-hmm. think I had a lot more notes. I definitely had a lot more notes than what we talked about. Uh, it's The whole thing is whether you can put truth to all of it. I mean, yes, there's a lot of truth in there all this stuff happened operation high jump happened whether it's for the official reasons they say or if it's for other heinous things it seems a little crazy that they would immediately like there was instant after world war ii ended they're like oh man we gotta we gotta bring all these people together we gotta go down there yeah it seemed a little too quick so you can speculate on that all you had to be a reason oh yeah it had to be more of a reason than research Mm mm-hmm and whether he went through the hollow earth and how all that works. Yeah, the history is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think, man? Hollow earth? Mm-hmm. I want to go. You think it's you think it's real? Gun to your head. Think it's real? Yes. Yes! Yeah. May, maybe not to the extent that the map that we looked at, but I'm pretty sure there's something down there that we don't know. Something, something beautiful. Hmm. What about you? Gun to your head. Are you going with me? <laughs> oh man! It doesn't need. I'm, I even said not to the extent that the, the wild map that we looked at. Maybe the Hollow Earth doesn't cover the entirety of the interior of the Earth minus eight hundred miles of the crust. Just huge cavernous system. Yes, with with life we have no idea of. I'll say Ooh. yes because okay. we don't know what's inside. Right. We know what our, you know, our, uh, what is it? Instruments tell us. Yeah. 
So we're kind of guessing. Right. I'm going to say yeah. And partially because I don't know what the hell Antarctica looks like. Because exactly. all the Google Earth pictures look fake as hell. Did you look at them? I've looked at them, yeah. I've been looking at them for years, man. Just white and it no seems, detail. It, it just seems way too fake. Way too fake. And it makes sense. Like, they could just be like, yeah, that's all that's there. That's why it looks like that. Yeah, come on, like, dummy. What, yeah, what how the expect? hell do we know? We can't go there. Because there's an effing treaty on there that doesn't allow us to go. Oh, I, I did want to say one thing, though. Remember how I said that, I think it was last episode, that there is a fake South Pole? Yeah. So you got to think there's a geographic South Pole, there's a magnetic South Pole. Uh-huh. So I don't know there, I don't know if that South Pole that I saw is just the magnetic South Pole. Uh-huh. Or if it's geographic South Pole, or if I'm mistaken. Mistaken. But there is a... South Pole Pole down there that isn't exactly south. It's not geographic and it's not magnetic? Well, it, it might be magnetic. Sets? It might be magnetic. That's constantly shifting. I think they'd have to change that thing once a week. Well, then what would it be? Would it be a geographic to put you dead center? Yeah, that would, to me that would make more sense because magnetic is perpetually shifting. I, I don't even – they can't even keep up. They can't put anything anywhere. Be like, okay, this is the spot. Everywhere else is north. Well, either way. <laughs> I just I wanted to point that out that I'm I'm not a complete idiot. No, I didn't know that like I knew there was a geographic and a magnetic. Yeah. But I know there is a south pole that is not dead center. Like a fake south pole. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I feel like this There's something is to this. Pretty plausible. Yeah. Not to no, the extent I don't, want to say, I don't want to say pretty plausible. Not to the extent that all this is, but I think there's something. I think we don't know enough about our own planet to go worry about Mars. Yeah, everybody's like, go terraform Mars, dude. Let's stop breaking this one first. Yeah, we might be able to go right inside and be cool. <laughs> We're just gonna burn up the skies out here, and that's fine. You never know. Nope. Ready? Call it. Anything else? I mean. You you could have more? Yeah. Just like I'm sure you could. Probably. We could probably keep going for a while, but let's, yeah, let's not cover do that. a lot of ground. The next one will be fun. Yeah, it'll be a little low-key. I'm feeling, I'm we feeling did get a, a request for the, for the next one, too. A while, a while back. Did we? Yeah, when we had asked what people wanted to... Their favorite conspiracies were. All right. Sweet. Said, hmm? All right, sounds good. I'll have to do a little, uh, just a little background on it. But anyway, that's neither here, but it is there. Or is it in <laughs> another dimension? Ooh. Who knows? Who knows? And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. Stay weird, world. We'll see you next time.